Hello, humans! It's me, Ellie Crook, with Ellie 2.0 Radio and lovely AM 950. I know, that's my signature beginning of the show. Yes, it is. And I know that, and there are many people that come up to me and say, Ellie, I listen to your show, and I love that humans part. So how are you? Happy Saturday. Happy first Saturday in March. Um, happy warm in here in Minnesota, relatively. Okay, just it's a relative phrase. Warm Saturday in March. Okay, we're going to be in the 30s. It's something to celebrate, okay, after this winter. I am thrilled to be back. Um, we have a wonderful, wonderful show. The big interview is with author Emily Strasser about her forthcoming book, Half-Life of a Secret. You will love this interview with her. She is... Uh, it's her first book. She is, uh, it's, it's just a, f- a fascinating topic. So just trust me, okay? And of course, in the C block, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. Uh, but uh, as we usually do, let's begin with this week's show, uh, for this week's show, with our featured idealist, a name that many of you listeners are very familiar with. I'm speaking of MS, MSNBC News anchor Chris Hayes the host of the nightly All In with Chris, Day, Chris Hayes shows. Parenthetically, I have to disclose that I've been an MSNBC viewer uh, since 2007 when Keith Oberman was its star. Do you remember Keith Oberman? I mean, like Keith Oberman going after the jugular almost every night, okay? In the 16 years since uh, Keith Oberman, I've uh, watched as hosts have come and gone, okay, most notably Oberman fell from grace, and then there was the rise of Rachel Maddow, um, and and then there's Joy Reid who's come along, okay? Um, and Rachel Maddow is an idealist who I featured way, I mean, we are talking way back when LD 2.0 Radio was just, just a baby show back in 2018. Um, other MSNBC groupies like me know that Rachel Maddow has pulled back to just one evening a week, much to my great dismay, I will add, okay, uh, which has certainly affected my viewing choices for substitute content. I am somewhat at a loss here at the 8 o'clock CST hour uh, during the week, let me just tell you. Um, although I think I've decided I'm just going to start reading um, from now on rather than watching TV at eight, beginning at 8 o'clock. And truth be told, I would not be featuring Chris Hayes today except for something that he said on his show this week. Uh, He uh, spent a couple of nights uh, rightfully railing against Fox News and the recent revelations. I mean, we are talking humongous revelations about how Fox News stars, particularly Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, lied to Fox viewers, to America, about the results of the 2020 election. They knew they were lying. They still did it. They did it to keep the stock price up and uh, to keep their viewers because they were worried about losing viewers to Newsmax. In doing uh, that reporting this week, Chris Hayes highlighted how Tucker Carlson privately emailed Fox leadership, fearing that if Fox told the truth about the election, in other words, that Trump actually did lose, okay, that that truth would drive viewers to Newmax. And Newsmax and tank Fox's stock price. In reporting this this week, Hayes said that uh, never has he ever checked 
uh, the stock price of NBC's, MSNBC's parent Comcast. He also said he'd never lie to his audience. And I, for sure, believed him when he said that. And then I decided, you know what? I'm going to feature Chris Hayes to, uh, this week as our featured idealist. So who is Chris Hayes and how did he get to a position in life where he hosts a nightly, a nightly hour-long news show that reaches millions of people? To begin, Chris Hayes just turned 44 years old. I mean, he is in the news world of hosts, okay, a baby. His birthday was February 28th, so he just had his birthday. He was born in, in the Bronx in New York City. His father was a former Jesuit um, seminarian, okay? He didn't make it all the way, obviously, who turned a community organizer. Father uh, continues to work as the assistant commissioner, as an assistant commissioner with the New York, New York City Department of Health. Chris Hayes' mother was a school teacher and now works for the city's Department of Education. And uh, there are patterns here as I, you know, feature contemporary idealists, and Chris Hayes fits into that pattern. So like many of the idealists I feature, Chris Hayes was able to access a gold-plated education. He attended a prestigious college prep high school in New York City, and then he went on to Brown University, one of the Ivy Leagues, where he majored in philosophy after graduating from Brown in 2001. Now, 2001, he got out of college, okay? Um, you know, that's not all that long ago. After getting out of Brown in 2001, he ended up in Chicago working for a weekly newspaper. Two years later, he became a senior editor for a Chicago labor-focused monthly magazine. So obviously, Chris Hayes was headed down the road of being a print journalist. By 2007, it seemed as if Chris Hayes um, would continue on that path because in 2007, he became a contributing writer. Um, and then later on, the D.C. editor for the well-respected magazine, The Nation. Um, and then he was also teaching. He taught English at St. Augustine College in Chicago. However, in 2010, Chris Hayes' life shifted dramatically. And I've tried to, to research how he got this break. I still do not know how he got the break. But the shift happened, okay, um, in July of 2010. And that's now just nine years after Chris Hayes graduated from Brown, okay. In July of 2010, he found himself guest hosting for Rachel Maddow while she was on vacation. She was at that time in Afghanistan. That led him to become a frequent substitute for Rachel Maddow when she was out. And then he became a sub for other hosts like Ed Schultz or Lawrence O'Donnell when they were on vacation. So he started getting his chops by, you know, being the fill-in. And then a year later, in August of 2011, MSNBC announced that Chris Hayes would host a two-hour show uh, titled Up With Chris Hayes on Saturday and Sundays. I mean... You know, I mean, at this point, he's only out of college 10 years, and he's got a, he's got a show on MSNBC <laughs> twice on, on weekends, both days of the weekends. And then a year and a half later, in March of 2013, MSNBC gave Chris Hayes the slot that Ed Schultz had, okay, before Ed Schultz cut back to a weekend show. This new show, All In with Chris Hayes, made him, at age 33, the youngest news anchor in history. Subsequently, 
All In with Chris Hayes won Emmys in 2015 and 2018. Now, I've got to tell you, okay, um, I watch Chris Hayes. He has now become, for me, the replacement to Rachel Maddow. And, um, and, and it used to be a wonderful combination. You get Chris and then you get Rachel and you'd be like, by the time you're done, you're like, okay, I got what I need, okay, to know about the world. Um, and Chris Hayes, um, he's, very, he's, all, he's also got a podcast, okay? And, um, and that podcast brings in a number of different guests. I'm actually going to try and see if I can get on that podcast. We'll see, okay? But, um, but th- here's the thing about him, okay? I do believe him. He, he seems very genuine in what he talks about, and he is incredibly passionate about about truth and justice, incredibly passionate about giving voice to people who lack those voices. Um, and he's, you know, he's certainly, he's certainly willing to go um, against those, okay, who, you know, who have positions of power and who, you know, abuse those positions of power. I love this week. I mean, he kept railing at, you know, Fox News, um, trying, you know, coming off as, you know, everyday man's news, you know, um, uh, news uh, outlet, okay? You know, but, you know, Rupert Mur- Murdoch is not a man of the people and neither is Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity. These are people who have gold-plated lives who uh, I guarantee you are not sitting around hanging out with the average Fox News viewer, and Chris Hayes is, is willing to call all of them out on that. Um, he, he strikes me as somebody who'd be absolutely comfortable sitting across from some, you know, just, you know, Joe, Joe, um, you know, pipe fitter or Joe drywall hanger or Susie, the teacher. Um, I'm not trying to be stereotypical here or Susie, the truck driver. Okay. And having a beer with him. And that he'd be absolutely comfortable in his shirt sleeves rolled up and, you know, just, just getting to know him. He strikes me as that way. And I think that he has great promise for us um, as, he goes, as he goes forward. Um, I trust him. And that's incredibly important. And he is, no doubt, an idealist. Okay. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, uh, Chris Hayes. Follow him if you haven't been. Give him a shot if you've never watched him because I think it's well worth your time. And when we come back from our break, okay, I'm going to do the big interview with Emily Strasser and her book about her book, Half-Life of a Secret. You will enjoy this interview. Um, you will. And it's not the last time you're going to hear about her. Okay, we'll be back. We're back, LE 2.0 Radio. Um, I am thrilled because it's time for the big interview, and I am absolutely, ab- absolutely thrilled about our guest today. Um, I am pleased to introduce Emily Strasser. She is a writer out of Minneapolis. She got her MFA from the University of Minnesota. Her work has appeared in a number of literary magazines. Uh, she's uh, 
won a number of awards, including uh, the fact that she was a 2019 McKnight Writing Fellow, which, let me just tell you, is a big, big deal. And she is the author. This is her first book. She is the author of a book with the title Half-Life of a Secret. Emily Strasser, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Good. We're thrilled to have you here, Emily. Um, you uh, you had reached out to me, and I'm really thrilled that you you did, about your book, Half-Life of a Secret, which, by the way, uh, the book is not out yet. It, it won't be out until the beginning of April. I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell everybody about it. But Emily, why don't we just dive into it? Tell us what um, Half-Life of a Secret is about. It's a fascinating topic, and it's also very personal to you. Yes, it is. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so Half-Life of a Secret follows my journey to reckon with the toxic legacies of secrecy that came from my grandfather's work building nuclear weapons. I never knew my grandfather, and he worked in this strange city called Oak Ridge, Tennessee, that was built for the sole purpose of enriching uranium for the first atomic bomb, the bomb that ultimately was dropped on Hiroshima, and um, then continued to be a site of nuclear weapons production um, in, you know, into the Cold War, and today continues to be a site of nuclear weapons production. Okay, and... and- so, so you've got a grandfather who worked on the Manhattan, what would have been the larger yes. Manhattan Project that mm-hmm. produced the atomic bomb, and and so part of this is also described as a research memoir. So this is you've got some factual information in this, some his, historical information in this book about building the atomic bomb and its effects, because you ended up going to was it Hiroshima to see yes. the, the victims. Um, mm-hmm. So it, some of it is all factual, but it's also family-based. It's about your grandfather. And there's a, the theme of secrecy um, that, that's in the book. Can you explain what that's about, please? Sure, yeah. So it's, it's sort of two-pronged, or gets to be more than two-pronged, but the two main sort of threads of secrecy that run through the book are surrounding the work on the nuclear bomb itself, um, which... I already mentioned that Oak Ridge was the city that was built for the purpose of enriching uranium. While it was not listed on any maps at the time, most people who lived there didn't even know what they were working on. They just knew they were working on a top secret war job. So they, you know, did whatever little piece of that, you know, and that's including people like janitors or construction workers, right, who are part of making this possible, but had no idea. My grandfather was you know, a mid-level chemist who may have been able to sort of guess a little bit of what he was working on because he would have known something about uranium, but certainly was not clued into the whole project or the scope or how far they were along. So that culture, obviously, after after Hiroshima, um, in fact, everybody in, in Oak Ridge learned what they were working on when Truman announced the bombing of Hiroshima over the radio. So they didn't get any advance notice. Right. Um, they learned with the rest of the world. It was pretty wild. After that, of course, it's no longer secret what Oak Ridge does, but the work itself is still pretty secret. And there's a culture of secrecy that gets baked into the city itself. And and throughout, that's true throughout the nuclear weapons industry. So there's this idea of compartmentalization, which is what I already mentioned. People only know um, exactly what they need to know to, to do their jobs. And that, um, that ex- extended throughout the nuclear weapons industry. The other threat of secrecy is... Um, is around my grandfather's um, mental illness, which was um, sort of increasingly became debilitating as he 
as he aged um, and in the last several decades of his life and was something that he had to keep secret, you know, in, in town in order to not lose his job, for instance. Right, right. Of course, the government didn't want anybody with mental health issues Right. Okay. So, and so, and this is also a family secret to a certain extent. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's complicated. It's something that we talked about, but that we addressed in a sort of sanitized way. So I uncovered a lot that had not been shared with me at all. Okay. And, 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 and how is it that you, you chose this subject to write about? Because you grew up in a background, which was a pacifist background. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I went to a Quaker school from second through eighth grade. Um, my family weren't, weren't practicing Quakers, but certainly that was like pretty ingrained in me. And I, you know, we weren't, we didn't have like squirt guns that looked like guns. They were like frogs, right? <laughs> like we weren't allowed to have toys that were weapons. Um, and so, and, and that was even in my house, not just in my school. So I had this memory from my childhood of my grandfather, a photograph of my grandfather standing in front of a nuclear test blast. And like you are in a, as you're a child, you don't really question, you know, necessarily the things that are um, in your surroundings. This was in my grandmother's house. Excuse me. Um, but when I was in college, as I'm sort of starting to embark on the world and think about, you know, what does it mean to live a good life? How do I live a, a moral, ethical life with integrity? I started thinking about this photograph and, and becoming really disturbed to think of what it represented and to realize that I knew very little about this history. And I guess that's another thread of secrecy, too, is how little my family actually talked about what my grandfather did and its implications. Okay. All right. So you, you get intrigued by the photograph. And, um, but it's not a, you know, it's not a natural given that you would go and spend, I mean, you've spent several years writing the book and not only writing it, but I mean, you did, you, you, you lived the research and, you know, so what, what was the, you know, the catalyst that said, you know, that, that got you to say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to shed some light on all of this. And and you you've got some vulnerability involved with this because the book is is a narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, what was the catalyst that got you to do that? Yeah, so so I think it was that time of my life that I was in college and I was starting to get curious about sort of where I came from, you know, right? And what um, what what formed me, you know, and feeling disturbed by this. There was actually another event that happened around that time that was a catalyzing incident. Um, there was this environmental disaster that happened um, outside of Oak Ridge where my grandfather, where my grandmother had lived and where I saw that photograph um, on Watts Bar Lake in East Tennessee. It, um, the Kingston fossil plant there had this explosion of all these tons of toxic fly ash. You're nodding like maybe you've heard of yep, this. I sure am. I'm very aware of it. It was a, it was a horrible the breach of the of the dam that was holding all of the fly ash is that right yeah that's right yeah and i'm not going to try to i have a bad head for numbers so i'm not going to quite quote how many tons of fly ash there were but it was like bigger than the exxon valdez bigger than the um deep water horizon spill in, in terms of volume right and so um that really it started to make me think about that place again and i found out that 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 um that fossil plant, which is a coal burning plant, was actually built to help um, give energy to the Oak Ridge operations when they needed more electricity during the Cold War because they were 
you know, ramping up production. Right. And so I, I didn't know sort of what the link was or what I was following, but it was sort of this place that I love, this like natural, beautiful place that I'd spent summers growing up. My grandmother's house suddenly was sort of unsafe and tainted with this history, this kind of dark history. And I felt like I needed to get to the bottom of that. Wow. Well, and, and, and losing a sense of, of safety um, can be extremely mm-hmm. traumatizing. I mean, it's trauma yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. So tell us what um, what do you what what did you learn, and what you know what shows up in the book? And please, please talk about going to Hiroshima as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, what I learned is um, is so vast, and is the whole project of the book. But I along the way, you know, I went I went back to Oak Ridge. I interviewed friends and family. I learned about. Um, <clears throat> both more about what my grandfather had done, about his um, struggles with mental mental illness. Um, I interviewed other Oak Ridge workers and veterans. I interviewed people who um, attribute chronic illnesses to exposures from environmental exposures from either living or working in the plants. Can I stop you? And can I yeah. ask, as you were interviewing, you know, the, the, the people who had worked on the project, the Manhattan Project, who were involved with building the bomb, did were there people that were regretful about having been involved or were they like super patriotic that they thought it was, you know, something that they, you know, that they needed to do for our country and they were proud of having done it? Yeah, for the most part, the latter, really. Um, and I think Oak Ridge really has a sense of patriotism and sense um of pride in that history. And um, and it's something I find sort of disturbing having done a lot of my own research on that history. Of course, it's hugely complicated. It was a, it was a bad, complicated, messy war on many sides. Um, but I think some of the arguments justifying the, the, aside from me sort of basically being a pacifist, some of the arguments for justifying the, um, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were really created after the fact. And, yet were pushed so well that people still believe them and are still sort of taught um, certain narratives such as, you know, wild numbers are quoted saying that some, you know, million American soldiers would have died in a land invasion of Japan. Um, That's not true and was not true of casualty estimates at the time. Maybe some tens of thousands, which is no small number. And and people can argue about how, I, I don't know, I mean, I just, I don't want to do math with numbers of lives. Like I think what happened sure. in Hiroshima was, was horrible. And like, it's not only the people who were killed, it's the health effects of the people who survived. It's the trauma. It's right. just setting the precedent that you can do that to a people into a world, you know? Okay. So, so, so you re- you go to Oak Ridge, you, you research, you talk with people who worked on the project. These would, I would guess be people now in their eighties. Um, mm-hmm and not, if not 90s, um, mm-hmm. you find out that they have this sense of great patriotism about what they did, but at the same time, your, uh, your horror about what happened, I, I assume, is growing. And, and then you, get, you go over to Hiroshima, and will you talk about how it was that you spoke with survivors mm-hmm. you know, of the bombing in Hiroshima? And... and and will you talk about the grace that you experienced? Yeah, of course, yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for that question. So I always knew that going to Hiroshima needed to be part of this story. And it was something that um, felt hard to do and, and necessary to do. And so in 2015, that was the 70th anniversary of the bombing is when I went. And um, there are a number of survivors, they're getting older now, so their number is fewer every year, who tell their stories publicly and are willing to give interviews to people like me and, and give their testimonies, um, and largely out of a desire to ensure that this doesn't happen again to anyone else and to um, advocate for uh, disarmament sort of all around. I was not sure what to expect, but I was completed with in complete graciousness and grace. I was, um, not only was I an American, but I was upfront about um, why I was there and what my grandfather's role had been. And people were wow, wow. sort of curious about that. Yeah. Um, and I think um, they accepted me, my presence there, you know, with a great deal of heart. And I'm extremely, extremely um, grateful for them, for the honor that they trusted me with their stories. I told them that I was writing a book. You know, I recorded these stories. Um, they appear in various forms in the book. And and um, other than the obvious emotional experience of talking with these survivors, what what else did you take away as it relates to the theme of of secrecy built on top of secrecy? Sure. Yeah. So there's there's Hiroshima is a complicated place, and um, you know there were things I was surprised to learn. For one, there is still a kind of secrecy among survivors. Um, the ones I spoke to obviously are not being secret about their stories, but there was a lot of trauma and there was a lot of discrimination after the bombing. People didn't know like. Um, what the health effects would do, for instance, people were afraid to marry hibakshas, that's the Japanese word for the atomic bomb survivors, because they thought maybe they would pass on genetic mutations to the next generation. Um, people were afraid to give them jobs because they didn't know what um, health effects would crop up later. And so there were people who hid their histories for a variety of reasons. And um, that's still true, you know, that the, the majority of hibakusha stories we will never hear. And so I was interested in that, interested in sort of whose stories do we get to hear and who and how do they get to tell them? So there is, um, I think there has, there is a narrative and a thread of forgiveness um, that is part of the story of Hiroshima now, which is um, on any individual level, like beautiful and gracious. And um, I didn't get the sense that there was much room for people to be angry at someone like me. Um, for instance, the way that the bombing is framed in the in the official museum itself is in the passive voice. So the museum plaques literally said things like the bomb was dropped, so-and-so was exposed to radiation, so-and-so was killed. There wasn't a mention of, of who's doing the dropping of the bomb, you know? And that really shocked me, you know? I, I thought, this is a place that um, should make a person like me uncomfortable. And certainly it was emotional and it was provocative, you know, in really profound ways, but it also felt like um, there was no, you know, it like, 
there was there there wasn't a lot of room. I guess I already said sort of for for anger at someone like me um, or or at someone like my grandfather. You know. Right. Well, you use the word forgiveness, Emily. So I'm going to ask you what may be a hard question, and that is. By the time you were done with the book, were you able to forgive your grandfather? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've thought a lot about this. I think actually by the time I finished the book, I thought that forgiveness wasn't really the point. I um, found I had some empathy and understanding for his limitations um, for what the personal ways that he never faced um, the work he did and um, the the trauma, some childhood trauma, some things that happened in his own life that I think um, probably made him a person who was more prone to secrets, more prone to being shut down and more prone to turning away from this kind of harm. Um, and especially in Hiroshima, I was thinking a lot about this tension between sort of innocence, guilt, and forgiveness. And I think this desire to, to have, um, to have innocence and guilt, to have forgiveness can actually lead to a lot of harm. It can lead to sanitizing stories about, um, about things like this. So, you know, in Japan, you can see, um, that there is, can be a problematic framing of, of Japan only as an innocent victim. Um, when, and, and which is not to say that the people who were bombed were not innocent victims, right? But that the country right. um, perpetrated atrocities during that war and, um, and has sanitized that history in the same way that Oak Ridge sanitizes the history of the bomb when they, um, when they tell that story, you know, and don't look at the harm that sure. their work caused. And so, um, so I tried to move away from that narrative. Did you find some peace at least with your grandfather through this process? I think I found, I found peace in finding the truth, you know, and, 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 um, in telling a complicated story about a complicated man. And I think what I came out of it was, was that I want, um, love to be an act of truth telling or truth telling to be an act of love. And so, um, if we have any ground to stand on, it has to come from the truth. So, so Emily, um, when you and I <clears throat> prepared for this interview, you talked uh, to me, and you usually you freely use the word about being a young idealist. Um, as you started, you know, as you were younger as a human, and and um, and as you started the book, can I can I ask you what what made you so idealistic? Because mm. your book. I, I mean, I have not had the chance to read it because it's not out yet, but, but, uh, and we'll give you a chance to tell everybody about how to get a copy of it. But, but, um, you know, um, your book is a book about trying to change the world. You know, maybe you didn't intend to do that, but the subject matter is, is very deep. It's, it's, it's about us as humans and mm -hmm. how us as humans do things as a result of trauma and then create trauma, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about this question. I, you know, I think, um, 
in some ways, of course, there's some amount of influence you get from your parents. I think my mother is is the one who takes up causes. She actually was an anti-nuclear activist, um, you know, in her in her youth or sort of young adulthood, um, quite um, passionate about that cause. I think my father, he's um, he's now retired, but he's a doctor of rehabilitation medicine um, doctor, and he went into that field, I think, out of a desire and a, and a belief that he could help people in a way that was holistic, that involved treating the whole human. Um, and so that was, I think that kind of influenced me. Um, and I've also just from a very young age been deeply concerned with, with justice and with the idea of integrity. Um, and for me, integrity means like living in alignment with your values and, um, and being honest about yourself um, and what those values are. And that's what I found so disturbing about this history is um, it's not just my grandfather, but like so many sort of ordinary non-famous people um, were um, part of this, right? Were part of this project. Well, tens of thousands for sure. Yeah. Ordinary people. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Okay. Um, Yeah. So, uh, so Emily, I know right now we've got listeners who are like, okay, I got to read this book. Um, you're going to have a book launch and then other pre-orders. So go ahead, tell the audience how they can find out uh, about your book and how they might be able to pre-order it. Thank you so much. Yeah. So um, the official release date is April 4th. You can pre-order it basically anywhere you can order books. Um, Hold on a second. Let's give them the title again. The title of the book is Half-Life of a Secret. Uh, written yes. by Emily Strasser. All right, go ahead. Thank you. Okay, mm-hmm. they can pre-order it how? Yeah, um, so you can pre-order it anywhere you can order books, um, certainly through Amazon, independent bookstores, through the press itself. Um, I am signing copies that are ordered from Moon Palace Books, a local, awesome local bookstore. So if you'd like a signed copy, um, please support them. And you can just order them, they'll deliver, um, or you can pick it up at the store and have a little browse. And then I'm doing a launch event. I'll be in conversation with Catherine Savage, who's another beautiful local writer, um, at Madras and Quinn on April 4th at 7 p.m. Okay. And so the, the general public can come to Majors and Quinn and, 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 and be there for your book launch, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's free. Registration is required. So you'll want to go on their website and just register for a ticket. Okay. All right. Well, Emily Strasser, I am just thrilled uh, to have you on the show and to be able to get you early, because I think you're going to be on a, a number of different uh, talk shows and, and a number of different media that are going to be way larger than LE 2.0 Radio. I wish you the best of luck with your book, Half-Life of a Secret. I am uh, thankful that you've written it. And, um, and please continue to talk about what you learned and about the value of truth facing facing some of our demons and the need to be truthful to ourselves and to the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words and thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, everyone. All right, that's the big interview with Emily Strasser, author of Half-Life of a Secret. Go and pre-order the book. Go to Majors and Quinn on June, April 4th and at 7 o'clock and be there for the reading about the book. Okay, when we come back from our break, I'll do my C block, talk about my work as an idealist. Okay, everyone, we'll be back in a sec.
And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. I haven't even used the phrase the bunker yet. So there you go. Talking to you from the bunker. Okay, Emily Strasser, uh, Half-Life of a Secret. Go order the book. Okay. Um, I. It sounds to me like it's going to be a, it's a fascinating read. All right. So there you go. All right. Scene block. Talk about my work as an idealist. Let's see, what have I done this week? Um, this week, I sat with LGBTQ plus kids um, at my local school district, and uh, we talked about fear. I asked them, what were they afraid of? And you know what? I heard a variety of things, including I'm afraid that I might not get to live to be me. I might not be able to be me because of what's going on in our country. One of them, a young transgender woman, I was just really totally impressed with. She said, with what's going on in Florida with the insurance? And I'm like, holy cow, you are up on it. Because Florida, is, you know, innovatively, um, Florida and Texas and Oklahoma are now going after, you know, insurance for gender-affirming care, saying that insurers cannot provide coverage for gender-affirming care for youth and for adults, it's very sophisticated on their part to do that because um, that really will have a major impact on transgender people generally. Um, I mean, if I couldn't get my gender affirming care, I could not get my medication, um, it would, uh, it would uh, kill me. It really would. So I, so I did that. I, I talked with these young people and um, I was just cr- incredibly touched incredibly touched by how smart they are, how in tune they were with each other and supportive of each other, and, um, and, how, uh, and how much they're at risk. So, so I did that. I had, a board, I had a school board meeting. I had a school board retreat uh, last weekend. Um, I'm continuing to learn uh, things about how school boards operate and continuing to be reminded that, um, that it is a challenge for Ellie Krug, the idealist, because I keep bumping into systems and, and policies and protocols and nothing, nothing, um, and I, nothing is easy. And I don't think that that's just my school district. I think all school districts, you start getting involved with the government. And so people keep asking me, you know, are you, know, are you enjoying it on the school board? And my answer back is, um, not really. <laughs> but I did not, you know, I didn't run because, oh my God, I want to do this. I ran because I was called. And I understand that. There's no regrets here. Don't, don't worry about that. But um, I'm still trying to learn how to, you know, kind of crack the nut. We'll see. Um, I, I'm giving you a hodgepodge here. Uh, Iowa continues to amaze me at how incredibly uh, crazy uh, the Republicans in charge are, are, are going with the state. I mean, this week they've introduced a bill to ban same-sex marriage in, you know, the Iowa legislature. It, it very well may pass. I mean, it won't matter because federal law controls on this, but, you know, I mean, and of course they're going after the trans kids, you know, and gender, they're going after gender affirming care. They're going after, they're going even after pronouns. Okay. So there, there's a bill now that you, you can't, you don't have to use anybody's pronoun that they want you to use. 
and that you can't be punished for not using uh, the proper pronoun for somebody, which of course is just basic, you know, human decency. All right. Um, I mean, you know, it's like calling me he and him. Okay. Because you want to make a point about it. All right. And, you know, I was saying everybody's got the right to do that with Ellie Krug and, and they, they in the school setting can't be, you know, reprimanded or even talked to about it. You know, I mean, I, I you know, I, and I just saw before I got on here on Twitter how Iowa has the distinction of the worst bridges in the state, okay? Uh, the second uh, highest leading, uh, highest rate of, of cancers, the third, the, th- the third highest rate of, of um, incarcerations for people of, of color, that, you know, that, that, that Iowa is, ranks 41st in education, now, I got to tell you, when I grew up in Iowa back in the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s, Iowa was number two, always vying between Wisconsin and Michigan, or excuse me, Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa, vying to who was going to be number one, okay? They have fallen that far. And it just continues, continues to hurt my heart um, that they, that, that um, Kim Reynolds, the governor, and her team, are hell-bent, hell-bent on out-floriding Florida. Uh, it's just unbelievable. Okay, uh, something to uh, keep uh, your ear for, all right? Um, at some point in the pretty near future, I'm going to have Tom Hartman on this show. You know Tom Hartman? You know, his show is regularly on, on AM 950. I'm going to have him on the show, and it very well may be that I'm going to be on his show at some point in the near future. So keep that in mind, all right? I, we're, we're, we've gotten to the end of the show. Here we go. So I need to give a shout-out to my wonderful, incredible producer, Brett Johnson, who always keeps me in line and is always just the epitome of professionalism. And do you, my viewers, or viewers, no, I'm not on MSNBC, although I'd like to be. Can you imagine what that would be like? Um, my listeners... Um, Will you do me a favor, okay? Between now and when you hear my voice next, will you go out and do something? Do something, even the smallest thing in the world, okay? To make the world better. Will you do that? And, uh, you know, email me at lejkrug at gmail.com. Tell me what you did, all right? Um, Next weekend, I'm not going to be here. It'll be a repeat show. I'll see you the week after that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.